What's going on, Renaissance? My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here, according to Jessica, the best father in the land. <laughs> so today is not just Father's Day. It's also Juneteenth. Uh, the calendar is jam-packed, y'all. Now, it's interesting. I grew up in the black church with two black parents. I went to HBCU for, for college and for law school. And for whatever reason, in my circles, I never really talked about Juneteenth outside of like a date from the textbook somewhere. All my Texas people, everybody from the great nation of Texas, uh, you, might have, you might have grown up hearing and talking about it, but it wasn't very widespread in my circles. But for the last number of years, uh, as I've learned more about it, uh, Juneteenth has come to signify a lot, mainly because I think back to that day, and I can imagine, just for a brief second, the tears of joy, the shouts of praise, the hugs that were shared, the disbelief in their eyes as that first Juneteenth happened and those formerly enslaved people realized that what they had been praying for their entire lives has finally happened. I don't know if you've ever gotten a yes to a prayer request that you prayed not for a couple of days or a couple of weeks, but for years and to see it come to fruition. Now, that is a beautiful thing to celebrate in and of itself. And today we celebrate freedom. As my friend uh, and New York City pastor Russell Berry says it, celebrating the end of the evil institution of slavery is valuable for us now, no matter how messy and incomplete it is. It's a reminder of where we've been and hopefully where we're going. So today we celebrate not just what happened, but also where we are going. And by God's grace, I pray that today, as we think about all of the things that Juneteenth brings up, we would commit our lives today and tomorrow to be instruments in God's hands to tear down systems of oppression and injustice. But here's one of the problems with that. Oftentimes in life, people want a solution that is as large scale as the problems. But what I've realized in studying history is that is rarely the case. It is extremely rare in life and in history that major problems have been solved by one major drastic decision. If you were to actually read through history, you would see there's a whole lot of very small things that have happened that built up momentum towards really truly seeing liberation in a variety of different ways. So here's a quick uh, commercial plug for something that we've been working on at Renaissance for the last two years, an organization called Pray March Act. Pray March Act is an organization that we are teaming together with a lot of churches in New York City to truly lend our hands to be instruments of righteousness, to see systemic and policy changes. We're working in housing and education and our carceral system. And if you are a person who is eager for justice, I would want you to move past just the desires of your heart and be a person that's doing something. So you can go on PrayMarchAct.com and register on their website for more information and hear more about what they are doing. I'm going to pray for us before we get into today's, really get deep into today's message. So God, our Father, I'm grateful for Father's Day and the reminder that it is. I'm grateful for Juneteenth and the freedom that we can celebrate. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today as we turn to your scripture, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to receive your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Now, another reason that Juneteenth is so uh, powerful and profound is this concept of freedom. Now, freedom is a major theme in the Bible. 
I would go so far as to say that unless you understand the concept and the theme of freedom in the Bible, uh, you cannot understand what God has come to do in your life or in this world. There's a scripture that I want us to look at today, and it's going to really shape the rest of what we're talking about. And it comes in Romans uh, 8, verses 14 through 17. It should be on the screens uh, beside me. It says, for all those who are led by God's spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Now, in the scripture, what Paul is talking about is what it means to be in relationship with Jesus. Whether you are brand new to church and you haven't been here in a very long time, whether you have been in church for a very long time, whether you are a leader here, the essence of what it means to be in a life-giving relationship with Jesus is freedom from fear. Now, I don't have to define what fear is. We know what that feels like. Uh, I was in a text thread with some of my boys this past week. And there's no more random thing on this planet than a text thread of 40-year-old men. <laughs> It'll be going like crazy strong for a day and then just disappear for two years. <laughs> it magically reappeared uh, this past week, and my friends were clowning me, actually, for a memory that even as I retell the story, I still feel the fear in my stomach. When I was about 19 years old, um, I had a Mitsubishi Galant. And for the uninitiated, a Mitsubishi Galant is a four-cylinder engine. Uh, that car was not manufactured to go anything above 58 miles an hour. I thought that joint was a Porsche, and I would drive that car in ways that the manufacturers of Mitsubishi never intended. And one of my friends uh, put the battery in my back, and he said, yo, Jordan, uh, on the way to Baltimore, I know this way we could take, and there's no cops. I was like, great, what could go wrong? So we were driving, and I didn't see any cops for a little bit, and took it from, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80. And before I know it, mom and dad, cover your ears. I was going 110 miles an hour in a Mitsubishi Galant. As I was driving, I was feeling amazing, like, this is great. We're saving so much time. We're going to get to Baltimore in a record time. And then out of the corner of my eye, I saw the cops. Now, most people would have been afraid of the cops. I was not afraid of the cops. I was afraid of my father and what my father <laughs> would have said to me and done to me if he realized that I was going 110 miles an hour on the way to Baltimore. And I had two decisions. I can stop and pull over or I can do what my friends were telling me to do and keep going. <laughs> I made the genius decision to keep going and... I was going, instead of 110 now, about 115. And I saw the cop pull out behind me. And the statute of limitations has run out from this already, so I'm safe. <laughs> the cop pulled out from behind me, put on his lights, and I saw an exit. About a quarter of a mile ahead was an exit. I pulled off the exit as quickly as I could. And by God's grace, I saw this beautiful, yellow, shimmering sign, Best Buy. And I drove as fast as I could into the Best Buy parking lot. Uh, drove to the front of the thing, parked illegally, put the car in park, ran inside of Best Buy. <laughs> and I stayed in Best Buy for like two hours. 
I went to the Magnolia section and started watching movies. I was, I knew the staff on a first name basis. I made myself at home. When I left about two hours later, I was positive the SWAT team was gonna be outside waiting for me, but nobody was there. And for the rest of the ride home, uh, ride to Baltimore, I was going 52 miles an hour <laughs> in the right lane. Now that was one of the most profound times in my life where I felt a real sense of fear. Now it's really interesting that my behavior didn't really change. What changed was this awareness that there was an authority figure who had now seen my behavior. Isn't that interesting about fear? That when we now be ha have an awareness that there's someone that we're gonna have to give an account to for what we have done, that's when the feeling of fear sinks in in our lives. Now, unfortunately, that was not the last time in my life that I have felt a real fear, although I have certainly matured in my driving. I spent a lot of time in my life afraid not just as a result of my stupidity, uh, but also fear in my relationship with God. Now, this is true for me. Uh, it might also be true for you. I, I tend to be afraid that God will not protect my loved ones. I tend to be afraid that I don't know what the future holds. And I don't um, have control over what's going to happen in my life. I tend to be afraid that I'm going I'm to die one day with unfulfilled dreams and hopes for my life not ever experiencing something that I truly wanted. And I also have some fears about the character of God. I have a fear that one day God is going to look at me and say, again? Nah, bro. Nah. I forgave you those 13 times, but come on. Again? You've done that again. Ultimately, I think what's underneath that fear is that God's grace is not enough. That at some point, his patience is going to run out in my life. Sometimes I also fear that my life is up to me to figure out on my own, that I'm kind of by myself. And in some ways, it paralyzes me and it fills me with a lot of anxiety to think about my future, to think about the plan, to think about my relationships, to think about all of the weight that I have to bear up in my life. And it feels just like, well, God is going to, he's going to leave me to figure it out. Even worse, he's going to judge me if I get it wrong. Others of you have fears about God. You fear that your past is insurmountable. You've just done too much. Other respectable people, God might have grace for them, but not for me because I, I've, I've done too much. And this scripture that we just looked at today in Romans 8, where it talks about us not having received the spirit of slavery that makes us fall back into fear, would not be something that categorizes or characterizes your relationship with God. Your relationship with God, in my mind, oftentimes, is full of fear. Now, I do want to say this really quickly. There is a concept of a healthy fear of God, that we should never treat God as ordinary. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are from the earth, so are his ways and his thoughts higher than our ways and our thoughts. I was thinking about it even today as a, in terms of another car analogy, that like it would be incredibly unwise to hop into a Lamborghini and to just mash the gas as hard as you can go on 125th Street. Like to disrespect the power of that car would harm you and everybody around it. Like there are some things that you should never treat as regular or normal. So I think there's a certain aspect of our lives that we should treat God with a reverence, with a real reverence. But what Paul is talking about here in Romans 8 and 15 is not the type of uh, healthy fear 
related to reverence for God. Now, he's talking about the fear related to punishment, the feeling of dread, that something bad is coming. I know a lot of people in here uh, who maybe haven't been in church in a little bit. I was talking to somebody a couple weeks ago, and they, they were, I was telling them that I was a pastor. And whenever I tell someone I'm, I'm a pastor, they immediately make up an excuse why they shouldn't come to church. I'm like, dude, I was asking, I'm ordering wings. I just wanted a 10-piece lemon pepper wings, bro. That's all I wanted. And when I talk to people and really get underneath, the fear that they have is like when I walk through those doors, I'm just going to like catch on fire. Like I'm just living, my life is too sucio. Like I'm living too dirty. <laughs> and they fear in a real way that like all eyes are going to be on them. That there could be hundreds and hundreds of people here today, but when you walk through those doors, there's going to be a lot of eyes on you. It's, just, it's this dread. And, and for so many people, you stay away from church because of this dread that you're going to be, you're going to be judged. The goal of Jesus in your life, that's not Jesus. The goal of Jesus in your life is, is liberation. It's freedom. When Jesus appears in Luke 4, Jesus comes and he reads the scroll from Isaiah. And as Jesus is talking about his purpose of what he has come to do, he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to those enslaved, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is after your liberation. Jesus is after your freedom. So there's no reason to, to fear that. So the author John elaborates on this concept of fear. Where he says this in 1 John 4 and 18. He says, there is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. What John is getting at is what Paul is getting at is that fear and God's love are mutually incompatible. They are oil and vinegar. They can never mix. But in a lot of ways, we have our own methods for the way that we deal with the fears and the guilt that we carry in our lives. Two main things that we do probably on a daily basis, we do them so much that we don't even realize that we're doing them. We either try to bury our guilt and our fears or we try to beat ourselves up for them you know what it feels like to try to bury the things that you've done. There's a bunch of different ways we can bury stuff, but it doesn't work because it really never stays buried. We can try to minimize the things that we're doing. It's not that bad. Everybody's doing it. We can rationalize it and we can tell ourselves that it was justified. Or we can compromise and over time, slowly but surely, we end up just lowering, lowering our standards. But the crazy thing about trying to bury stuff is even when it comes to, forget God's standards, our own standards, like we live below our own standards for our own life. If someone was to pass you a pen and some parchment paper and say, hey, write a code of commandments for how life should be lived, we would fall below our own standards every single day. And so many of us, we're experts at trying to bury stuff in our lives, and we never end up experiencing freedom, true freedom that God wants us to have, because all we're doing is just racking up more and more skeletons in our closets. Here's what David says in Psalm 32. He says, when I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. And then David says, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal, did not bury my iniquity. 
I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And here's what David says God does. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, I've been a pastor long enough to know that there are some things that people have done that is worse than just cheering for the nets or something like that. (laughs) You got real stuff in your life. You got real stuff in your life, and you wonder whether or not God can actually handle the realness of your life. You wonder whether or not the reality of all the stuff that we talk about in church, does it have any application to the reality of your life? So in so many different ways, we try to bury the things that we've done, and sometimes we also bury the things that have been done to us. Not knowing that there is power, there's liberation in going back in our stories and allowing Jesus access to the parts of our lives that we don't want anybody else to see. So in some ways we bury it. In other ways, we try to beat ourselves up. And this is my favorite thing to do. So I don't have to be afraid of God punishing me if I punish myself. I don't know if you ever, growing up, if you, you know, did something wrong. You know, my go-to when I was, like, uh, about to get in trouble, I would just, like, go to my room and just start cleaning stuff. I do that now. <laughs> when my wife is mad, I just, like, let me just go ahead and get to these dishes. And I start cleaning stuff up. I try to inflict on myself something so that the punishment that I think is coming will now be lessened. Now, here's a challenge with that. Physically, in your life, there are limiters on how much you can beat yourself up. Uh, Years ago, in 2019, we went to Mexico for a sabbatical. Mexico City, easily top three cities in the world. If you haven't been, book a flight and go there. Um, and one of the beautiful things about Mexico City is like the, the climate all year round is like around 72 degrees. And the reason it's that cool is because it's altitude. It's 7,500 feet in the air. Now, 7,500 feet in the air is great because there's no mosquitoes, but like it's hard to breathe at that altitude. And I had not worked out in like two years at that point, and my goal was to get in shape during sabbatical. So I found myself at a CrossFit class in Mexico City. Yes. The first day uh, I was in a class, and I, I'm too competitive. I'm very competitive. I looked at somebody across. I'm like, he ain't going to beat me today. This is me versus him right, there, right now. And that dude was dusting me down the entire day. Towards the end of the class, I felt the room starting to spin a little bit. And I was like, I don't think this is good. I don't think this is natural. And my body shut me down. My body said, JL, Papa, what are we doing? We're not doing that. We got a lot of work to do. Slow down. Sit down. And because I was not willing to sit down, my body was going to sit me down for me without my permission. Here's the thing, though. Emotionally and spiritually, you don't have those limits. Nothing will stop you from beating yourself up all day, every day. Nothing will stop the narrative that you're a loser. Look at me. The way you, man, I always do this. I'm such a loser. I'm, I'm so terrible. I'm so inconsistent. There is no limiter in your life emotionally that will stop you from doing that. Which is why, first and foremost, we need a really great Christian community around us that will stop you and say, don't talk talk about my friend like that. But here's the thing about beating yourself up. It also doesn't solve anything. It doesn't really get to the root of the fear that we have. So instead of beating ourselves up and instead of burying our, our, our sins, God wants us to truly experience freedom. But here's the thing. The only way we're going to get to live free from fear Free from fear, as Paul is talking about in Romans 8 and 15, is if we live dependently on God. The only way to live free is not just to live free by looking in yourself, 
It's not just to live free by reminding yourself of how great you are. The only way to live free is by actively depending on God. But how does that work? Now, the biggest reality is that most of us live, most of us live with the awareness that we live below God's standards for our lives. Now, that creates an uneasiness into our lives. And that uneasiness turns into a fear that punishment is on its way. And this is where the gospel of Jesus Christ is so profound and so necessary. The gospel message of Jesus Christ says that Jesus took all of our sin and he nailed it to the cross. But for you in this room who are thinking people, how does one man's death save me? In scripture, this is called substitutionary atonement, that Jesus died in your place and that in his death, you and I get life. This is the essence of Christianity. But check this out. How could someone else's death give you life? How does that work? Believe it or not, we talked about this on Good Friday. Every single meal you have eaten testifies to this fact that in order for you to have life, in order for your life to be sustained, something has to give up its life in your place. Today, as soon as we get out of here, you're going to walk to church and chill and go out to the grill and get some chicken and some hot dogs and some hamburgers. And check this out. Every single time that you have eaten a meal in your life, you are nourishing off the lost life of something else. Vegans, I got you too. I'm just jealous that I'm not disciplined enough to be a vegan. Every time you take communion, every time you pour a glass of wine, how are you being nourished? There was a grape minding its own business on the vine until it was snatched off the vine and crushed. And crushed so that you could enjoy the fruit. Every single time we eat a meal, we rehearse atonement. It's a testament that other, in order for you to live, other things must die. Every time we say grace over our meals, it's an opportunity to rehearse the gospel truth. Something had to die in order for you to live and to thrive. How much more life would you have if instead of a cow or a chicken, it is now the precious blood of our Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior the perfect sinless Savior, Jesus Christ? His life given for you gives you life. And God says this is a much better way for you to navigate life than trying to deal with it on your own. Instead of beating ourselves up or burying it, we can simply turn our attention, turn our lives over to the one who has given his life over for us. Paul says like this in 2 Corinthians 5, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what God is inviting us into. We are called, invited to trust in him, not because I'm good or that you're good, but because he is good. In Hebrews 3 and 15, it says this, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellions. One of the things that I think about oftentimes is when God comes to you, God is inviting you into life. He's inviting you into something much better than you can think about on your own. He's inviting you to real relationship. He's inviting us into real forgiveness. There's this quote by this one author who talks about something called the prodigal's suspicion. 
If you've been to church um, more than 19 times, you probably heard the story of the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son is the most profound one in all of scripture. Jesus tells it in Luke 15, but there's a part of the story that is something that humbles me greatly. Well, in the story, there are two sons. One son takes his inheritance, goes to Staten Island, spends it all wilding out. He wastes all of his money, and then a famine hits, and then he's really broke. And then there's no way that he can make it back on his own. And then it says, one day he came to his senses. He came to his senses and said, in my father's house, everybody eats good. Everybody has enough. Everybody, um, nobody is begging for food like, like I am right now. And I'm going to go home and ask my father to just be one of his servants. Now, here is the prodigal suspicion. Here is something that so many of us carry on a day-to-day basis. We think that because of what we have done, maybe God would allow us to come back and work for him. Maybe his grace is good enough for us to get a job because we messed up already. But the scripture says that while he was still a far way away, the father saw him and he ran. The prodigal suspicion was that God's love was only as good as his love. That God's love couldn't cover the mountain of his life and all of his flaws and his faults. And so many of us walk around thinking that maybe if we're good enough, if we tap dance in the right order, God might just let us work for him. But the scripture tells us in um, Romans 8, God did not give us a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, rather, the spirit of adoption that God takes us in as his own by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. So many of us stop at this concept of forgiveness. Um, I used to practice law, and um, I've had a number of cases where my clients, for sometimes reasons unknown to me, would get the grace of the judge, and that we walked up to the court that day thinking that they were going to go to jail. And by God's grace and mercy... They walked out that courtroom free. And they were so ecstatic to be let go without penalty for what they had done. But none of them were going into the judge's house that night for dinner. The story of scripture is not just that God forgives you for your sins, although that would be incredible if God did that, and because God does forgive us of our sins. The story of scripture is not just that you have been let go to manage life on your own, but rather that God invites us into a life-giving relationship with him, that we are adopted as his children with all of the rights as a child. So in order for us to experience the freedom that God wants us to have, it is not going to be found in you embracing an inner voice inside of yourself, but rather living dependently on God. Here's what um, uh, one of my boys, Rich Velota, said about our relationship with God. I, I thought it was so profound. He says this, Jesus tells us to pray for daily bread, but we'd rather have a Costco relationship with God. We'd rather have stuff in bulk so as not to come back to God so often, but we can't live without daily dependence. A a daily dependence on God, and what does this look like? The most beautiful doctrine in all of Scripture is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit is that God himself lives inside of all of the people who have put their faith in Christ, and that God walks with us. He is with us at all times, so much so that Jesus says this in John 16 and 7, and it's one of the boldest claims in Scripture. Jesus says, it is for your benefit 
that I go away, talking to his followers here. He says, because if I don't go away, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is telling his followers this. It is better that I go away because the spirit inside of you is better than Jesus beside you. If you were to have the choice right now to have Jesus move into your apartment and go with you to work every single day and sit over your shoulder and look at the emails you send them out and give you advice moment by moment, most of us would rather have Jesus beside of us. But Jesus says the Holy Spirit is so profound that it's better that I go away because the spirit inside of you is better than me beside you. And so many Christians live with a tragic neglect of the Holy Spirit. We want that Costco relationship with God. We want God to give us enough so we can be independent. And the only way for us to experience a freedom from fear is to live daily dependent on, on God. There's a preacher, an old preacher by the name of G.K. Chesterton. They don't make names like they used to, Chesterton. <laughs> he says this, do not free a camel of the burden of his hump. You may be freeing him from being a camel. When Paul says in scripture that we have not received the spirit of of slavery to fall back into fear, rather the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. He is saying that the opposite of fear is not simply freedom, but rather being, owned, uh, rather being adopted by God into God's family. That we would be like a camel without its hump to try to live independently. God doesn't want that for you. God wants us daily dependent on the Holy Spirit to give us life. As scripture says in verse 16, the spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, really quickly, one of the, the challenges of really truly receiving the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that we just don't slow down long enough to hear from the Holy Spirit in our lives. We don't give God access. We don't give God time. The people that you spend the most time with are the ones that have the most access to shape you. This past couple of weeks, I've been praying the Lord's Prayer with my oldest son. He does it as a stall tactic because he doesn't want to go to bed. That's how much he hates going to bed. He'd rather pray. And as we are praying the Lord's Prayer every single night, I, I get choked up when I think about all that it means. As he's praying those prayers, I, I'm, I'm praying alongside him like, God, please one day let him actually know the profound value of what it would mean for him to know you as his father. That you would never leave him or forsake him that you love him more than I love him. What it means for you to give him his daily bread. If you don't know where to turn in your own prayer life right now, go to Matthew 6, take out the Lord's Prayer and pray it line by line. Pay attention to whatever line pays, strikes you that day and allow God to minister and speak to you through that prayer. To pause long enough to allow God's spirit to testify to you, to, to rebuild you back up to build us back up in faith, because the only way for us to experience the real freedom from fear is to live daily dependent on God. We can never manufacture it on our own. So I want to leave us today with a couple of things of what it would look like in your life if you lived free from fear. First and foremost, I think Christians should be the most free people, never paralyzed by the choices ahead of us. So, so many times we think about the job, the job hunt that we're on, the apartment search, what city should I live in? Who should I date? What should I do? And there's so many decisions that, that paralyze so many people. But if it's true that God has adopted you 
as his child, then all of us should be so free. And here's why we should be so free. Because as Jesus says in John 14 and 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. What is an orphan? An orphan in those days was someone who lived in an orphanage. They had no parents to direct them or to care for them. Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. You are not left to yourself to direct yourself or to care for yourself. Now, if that is true, then this, it, it is profound for us in how we approach our decisions. If your decision ahead of you, if you, can, if you can glorify God in doing it, you should do it if you want to. In Genesis 3, there's a whole theology where God says, there's this one tree I don't want you to eat from. All of these other trees, go crazy. And so many times we're so paralyzed in our life because I think we just think that we're alone. Here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus does not give guidance. Jesus does guidance. Jesus will never give you the MapQuest list from the early 2000s with a whole set of instructions on how to get somewhere and leave you to your own. Jesus does guidance, which means if you get misdirected, he is with you. He is walking with you. He is talking with you. He is guiding you. And if you make a wrong turn, he will redirect you. That confidence, that boldness should allow us to be free to make decisions, not paralyzed by the fear that we, make, we made the wrong choice and we are doomed forever, to live with a, a newfound freedom. It should also look like a really confident prayer life. You will know that your prayer life is not confident if you spend the entire time complaining about yourself to God. I've done that so many times. Here's what, Paul say, oh, here's what the writer says in Hebrews 4 and 16. Therefore... Let us approach the throne of grace, the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. To pray with boldness is to expect that God listens to you, God wants to hear from you, and that God is inviting you into a relationship with him. There's no more bold person in my life right now than my 4-year-old, my youngest son. I was super tired this past week, and I was laying down on the couch Finally had some peace and quiet, had the cover on top of me. My four-year-old came and just snatched that joint off of me. <laughs> he treats me in such a way that if he, was a, if he were a grown man, I would have to fight him. <laughs> and you would be justified, like, yeah, Pastor got into a fight. What happened? Yeah, I would have fought him too for that. The stuff that he does could be characterized as no other term than just bold. But here's the thing. A child can be that bold with his father. Scripture tells us, if we were to see ourselves the way God sees us, we would be able to approach the throne of grace with boldness. Not recklessness, not disregard for our lives, but with the boldness, expecting that God wants to hear from you. And lastly, I think if we were truly free from fear, I think we would be known by our community. There's a lot of people who've been coming to Renaissance for a long time, and they, are, they know a lot of people, but no, nobody really knows them. They know about your cousin and your uncle and this and the, your job search. They know about those things but you have not let them see you. You have not let your guard down to be known by people in community. Now, I'm not saying go out to church and chill later and in the hot dog line, start telling everybody everything about yourself. <laughs> but I do think it's, it's worth tracing back. Why is it that you are so guarded for people knowing you? What are you so afraid of? You're afraid that when people know you, they'll judge you and that you will be deemed less. But if God is the one, if God is for you, who can be against you? So this week, I want you to do a couple of things. Number one, for those of you in this room who have already placed your faith in Christ, I want you 
paying attention to what you are afraid of. I want you asking yourself the question, when you feel burdened and anxious and overworked, ask yourself, what am I afraid of that the cross of Christ has not already proven? And for those of you in this room who you don't know where you stand with Jesus, here's what I want you to do. We have two ways primarily that we would love to connect you to Jesus Christ and to each other. I don't want you to leave today and just go enjoy a good time in the courtyard. I want you to leave today connected to Jesus. Now, we have people in the front who would love to pray for you. If, you wanna, if you're a person who would be willing to come to the front after service to pray, to get prayed for. Or alternatively, you can go on our uh, connection card by texting that word Harlem to 94000 and checking the box for getting more information about baptism. And one of our pastors will reach out to you to connect you, to, to have a conversation with you. No pressure about what it looks like for you to take that next step in faith. Because Jesus is inviting you into something. But the only way we will ever experience the freedom that God wants us to have is by living dependently on him. And that means turning away from ourselves and turning to him. And we would love to walk with you on that journey. So let me pray for you. God, our Father, uh, God, help us to believe that you are better than our fears about you. Help us to see the cross of Christ when we have the doubts about ourselves. Help us to know that you make all things new. Lord, help us to stop burying the stuff in our lives or trying to beat ourselves up and, and simply rather turn to you. Lord, help us to experience the freedom that you want us to have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.